Welcome to Off Book, a podcast from the Young Vic, where we have conversations with creatives who have recently inspired us with their work here. I am delighted to be joined by the actor and artistic director Josette Bushel-Mingo, currently starring in Nina at the Young Vic. Josette, thanks for popping in this afternoon. It's my pleasure. No, it's my pleasure. Okay, real pleasure. <laughs> um, I want to start right at the beginning with you mm-hmm. and you growing up in South London, in Lewisham, to Guyanese parents. And if I've done my research correctly, they were a nurse and a bus driver. Yes. Um, yeah, I was born in the East End of London, 1964. And that, that um, birth date has a huge resonance within the civil rights movement, civil rights movement overall. But 1964, I am the second daughter of four daughters, in fact. Um, and my mum was a nurse, uh, father was an omnibus driver, which basically means a bus driver. And um, I detect, so as my research takes me as part of the Windrush movement that brought so many uh, blacks from both Africa, but, but of course across the um, continents to the United Kingdom. So, um, and grew up in the East End of London, went to Creedon Primary, and then I went to Lister Comprehensive. And um, But when I look back, I think somehow the arts had its eye upon me. And so did, did music play a role in your upbringing, your growing up? Do you, do you remember hearing records as a child? Yes, I remember listening to Barbara Streisand, Tom <laughs> Jones. Um, in terms of my own vocals and stuff, I didn't really come to black music in terms of an understanding until much later, 16, 17, when, well, actually a bit later than that even, because I went to my local church, I sang in a choir, so music for me really was... Um, Ali Jones, you know, it was high soprano singing. So that's what my voice did, which is why it's always got a slightly unusual capacity because I can sound very pure and I can also hit a very soulful and blues register. And listening, for me, I was very much dominated by the TV at that point. So you had Top of the Pops and stuff like that. But in terms of singing at home and listening to no, no, it was quite conservative in that way. That's quite interesting then that you say that the the music of your childhood at home was people like Tom Jones and Barbara yeah. Streisand. So that none of these these black uh, singers. No, I mean, if I think about it in more detail, of course you had the, the Jackson Five, and I picked up soul music. Of course, once you got to the late seventies, eighties, but it wasn't. Um, and I think that encouraged. I think it was very much to do with my parents. Uh, my mother and father weren't together. My mother was um, what I would say quite um, conservative strict black woman uh, who I detect had seen a lot of struggles to try to protect her children and it wasn't that music wasn't important but she was also part of the colonies uh, British Empire British Empire went to church and the church was Jesus, Jesus Christ, God and we followed very much that so the influence, my mother used to sing very badly and very sharply <laughs> she's passed away now so um, but I remember that distinctly and it was always songs of uh, nostalgia and some some folk songs from home would occasionally pop up but I think the musical influence was really a search that started in opposition to what I was brought up with so I was singing this kind of high pure stuff and then started to particularly when I came into the arts actually and um, and did they encourage that when they heard you sing did they go oh hang on a second our has <laughs> got something about, about yeah that. yeah I mean I've been able to sing like this since I could open my mouth no practice no training no nothing um, it's um I think I've been asked to make records in the past. Uh, when I was younger, I sang in choirs, I sang in bands. Um, and I, a lot of the, the bands I sang with when I was young were political bands, actually, um, at that time. Uh, one band was called Rutabuga. I don't know what kind of name. It's a vegetable. <laughs> it just came to me now. But anyhow, that was quite informal, that bit. But um, in terms of 
the kind of music I listened to, what influenced me, it was very much uh, white music in that sense, do you know what I mean, um, that I listened to. But there was always an underlying, people heard my voice and went, wow. And I went, oh, all right. <laughs> I never went, of course, I'm a singer. And I didn't start out like that. I didn't start out wanting to be an actress, director or anything else. I wanted to survive, as I say quite clearly in the piece. I wanted to survive um, ridicule, shame, poverty. I come from a working class background. I wanted to be good. Um, I'm just wondering, because of because of that background, was there at any point your family saying, no, why don't you try this career or, or do something where you know, you're you're going to get a steady wage, but mm. there was. it seems that there was always that encouragement for you to pursue a career in the arts as, as a performer. I think my mum, my who looked after us predominantly, couldn't stop me. Um, I The first play she saw me do was a play I directed myself at Creedon Primary, and it was called The Owl and the Pussycat. And today you'd call it, I'd be a, what's it, a, what's it, a visual artist, combined artist. I used put masks and boats and storytelling and everything, and they saw that. Um, later on, they saw me perform in at Barking College of Technology, where I studied, uh, and that's where the first reviews started to arrive, local. And they saw it then. Um, I think also because my mum was on her own, there were four daughters, and the idea of trying to keep us all under control, all making sure we got a job, settled down in whatever way that would mean, that was the dominant thing. Did my mother ever say to me, I was the only daughter, I think, that she didn't say it to. Can your sisters sing as well as you can? I don't know. <laughs> I haven't tried it, actually. It's a controversial, controversial question. It's a controversial question, I think. <laughs> that you have to interview them. Um, I think, I, yeah, I'm sure they can sing. We used to pretend, when we were young, we used to pretend to be the, um, the three degrees <laughs> at one point. And then we used to be the um, stylistics. And I was always the lead singer. There was no argument about backing in that time. I think what's really uh, amazing is that we, we did that. I mean, we literally went down in chronological order as well in terms of height. But as I remember it as well, which is um, both poignant, I think, and quite sad, is that we always used to pretend that we had long hair, which is a black thing. We always used to pretend we had long hair, so we put old towels on our heads. I thought it was long hair. We'd be <laughs> flicking it from side to side, holding wooden spoons. So there was this really weird juxtaposition between singing and music, which is a cultural, maybe even an African history cultural context, with us still trying to be white in some sort of way. Um, and we were too young to know what that meant. But we had great fun. We had great fun. That makes me want to fast forward now and ask oh, okay. you another question, which is, when I introduced you, I really should have said Josette Bushel-Mingle OBE. <laughs> you and, could have, yes. <laughs> and you, you mentioned the colonies, and you mentioned um, growing up in, in working-class conditions with, mm. with uh, immigrant family. Yeah. How did that, that uh, letter in the post from the Queen uh, <laughs> go down with you and your family? Um, I always joke with my friends that OBE means, ooh, bloody hell. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, it was very interesting. Um, I was completely shocked. I became very moved when I understood how an OBE is nominated. It's nothing that the Queen goes, ooh, I think Josette Bush Mingo, because she doesn't know who the hell I am. <laughs> but other people have nominated you, and that moves me profoundly. People have been in contact with me, seen my work, seen me over years unexpectedly vote for you from your local area, from the, the cultural sector that you're from. Uh, and there are thousands of amazing people doing millions of brilliant things, so your name to be lifted up in that. Accepting it, of course, is also controversial, of course, because it's part of the British Empire, and that no longer exists. And in fact, I am one of the recipients of either the legacy of that. Um, and there was one artist who refused to accept it. It was a poet, Benjamin Zephaniah, I think. I remember him refusing to do it, refusing to accept it. Um, and I made the choice that I would accept it, so I would be known as the black British woman who accepted it, knowing what it meant. 
Was so, there ever a moment when you thought, perhaps I shouldn't accept this? No. I wanted everyone to see me take this, take it in the hand so I know exactly what this is. And was your mother still alive at that point? No. What do you think your mum would have said if she knew that her daughter had an OBE? <laughs> oh, bloody hell. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. She would have been extremely proud. I'm sure. Yeah. She would have, yeah, would have knocked her. That's for sure. Your work is very political as yeah. a performer, but also as a artistic director. Mm. And I want to ask you about Push, mm. which you launched in the early noughties at this theatre, I think, I at did. the Young Vic, yes. which was to promote black theatre. Yes. Um, really interesting that that happened then, and it seems to be in the discourse and narrative now about diversity within the performing arts. Do you think yeah. that we've gone anywhere in the 17 or so years since you first became artistic director of Push? Yes, I think we've come a long way. And what was very interesting, we had a brilliant post-show discussion here at Nina. And in that discussion, um, uh, a gentleman, a white gentleman, interestingly enough, disagreed with a statement that a fellow colleague, and I will get to the answer in a minute, but it was very important what he said, because he said, no, I think you can't say that the posters at the Young Vic aren't showing any of the faces that need to be here, you know. I don't believe that. I believe that actually the Young Vic have come a long, long way in it. And so I found, and I had to stop him and say, well, you've kind of misunderstood a little bit what she said. She didn't say that Young Vic was shit. She said there are times specifically when the young could do better. But what he also uh, brought up at that time was the fact that, or what he, he, he allowed me to answer was, what, in terms of how far we've got, yes. But in terms of what I need, no. There's a misunderstanding that because I have this interview, um, because uh, there are black faces on posters, because our stories, because we're seen in different areas, that that is enough. But the actual core thing that I want, which is equality, is not, you can't hold that. That's something else that you must give me, whether that's about changing the power base, whether that's about the way you look at me, whether it's about how you, how you acknowledge what may have happened. It doesn't mean we can't talk to each other and have a laugh. It doesn't mean you can't say, oh, can I have a black coffee? Because I'm going to kick off and say, what do you mean, racist? <laughs> it's not about that. But what it is that we as blacks want is so deep that everything else is not enough. So the answer is, have we come a long way? Yes, in many, many areas. But that core, deep, soul, spirit, historical thing that we need is not yet there. So what's the next step then? And how can um, white people, white allies... Mm help you on that journey? What, what can I do, for instance, as a white person? Um, well, I think it's a lot of things. There's one thing that I'm pushing a lot at the moment is education. I noticed in that after-show discussion, people didn't just want to talk about the show, they wanted to talk. They wanted to talk. Uh, yes, Brexit was there and the fire was there and things at Tatawa, you know, all these things that have happened in my city. But I think one of the first things to do is that from a legisl legislative perspective, more must be done in education. We are still producing black, white and other minorities coming out of institutions knowing fuck all about racism and its consequence. Not just about white to black, but across the board. End of story. That has got to change, otherwise we will end up in a room smaller than this one, if we're not careful. In terms of allies, I think the idea is to constantly address why what that ally alliance means, where you are in it, and also as well how you negotiate yourself with other whites because sometimes I think that is the more complicated when other whites here in this building, which is on it, they've got Black Lives Matter outside, but does it, really? I think that's one thing that has to be looked at much more. Individually, it's to work from a much more intersectional perspective. Um, Kimberly Crenshaw, the African-American term, that phrase, about being able to, in terms of what you can do, is to look at someone in their wholeness, which is not just their blackness, but their class, to their gender, and not to assume their gender to be able to, because this is something you can do yourself. 
The other thing, of course, is that you can also, an intersectional means of other class, uh, your education, that those are walking and surrounding every human being. I cannot judge you just by what you look like here in this room. It's not enough. I think finally as well, which maybe is the hardest, and that is the greatest civil right, is call it out. Call out that shit in the room. You need courage to do that. And you need infrastructure and backup. And it cannot just start from the reception and upwards. It has to be across the board. So what you can do individually is call it out. What you can do individually is educate yourself. Don't wait to be educated. You're giving me goosebumps saying that speech. Just like you really it wasn't are. a speech. I was talking to you, love. <laughs> well, that's, um, you know. that's really fantastic. But And do you feel positive, optimistic that we are on the right track, that we are on this trajectory? Or do you look at the news? Do you look at society and go, shit, we're in the same state that we've been in no, for decades? No, no, I am an optimistic pessimist. And what I am doing now to help myself is to stay in this place. This place of uncomfortableness, this place of insecurity, this place of who the hell am I in this as an artist, as a black woman, as a black British woman? Who am I? Do I think we will finally come to the end of a place where we can all live and be together? Absolutely. Will it be in my lifetime? Probably not. Which changes the way I work. And that gives me a joy and a boldness in terms of what I'm prepared to do. When you talk about... Um, and by when I say stay in this place, this place of, for example, Rashan Charles that died recently in Hackney, stay in the room when I say his name. Don't brush it under the carpet. When we hear about the young gentleman, another one now in Coventry, has just died in police custody. Stay in that uncomfortableness. The situations I bring up in the play from wanting to kill all white people to the big question of forgiveness and God all the way through and so on and so forth. Stay there. Don't walk away from it. Stay in that uncomfortableness. I mean, if I'm really crass, however uncomfortable my audiences feel, you paid for it. And you're there for an hour and 20. You leave your building after this. I think um, we will eventually come to that place. I have no doubt. But what we must do is that I, whatever I do, must be for you. Because you are the next. It's not about me anymore. Um, so, yeah. And, and this theatre, The Young Vic, yeah. when you walk through the door, mm. you can see that we've got flags flying outside the theatre. We've got yeah. the Black Lives Matter flag, but yeah. we've also got the uh, Gay Pride flag. Yes, and Jesus. also uh, the European the opinion, flag. Yes. And another one that went up this week, yes. uh, Refugees' Lives Yes. Matter. What does that mean to you, do you think? Or what does that mean for the theatre? Is that just um, tokenism? Is it just symbolism? Or does it Well, it can be seen as that. It can be seen as that. Um, when I look at the people inside the building, who's sitting in the bar coming to see the shows, I'm not so sure if they know what those flags mean. I think it is because I have a private love of the Young Vic, because it's where I did my breakthrough show when I was 18 years old, actually, uh, is that no other theatre is doing that in London. But Jesus Christ, you're going to have to stand up to it. And it's not just a repertoire. There's got to be much. You've got to open the building for more debate and discourse. You've got to start to look at that bar. I mean, I've got people going and say, can we go out? Can we go across the road? I don't feel so comfortable in here because it's white middle-class people inhabiting that space. I've been so tempted some nights to go, I know you've just seen the show, um, or what I've wanted to do, so what do you think about that flag outside? I want to know what they think about it. Do they even see it? And I think this, in terms of the theatre, be careful. Be careful it doesn't become an extraneous thing on the outside and that you can carry it through all the way all the way to the end of whatever that risk means what is the risk of the theatre having the outside I don't think your audiences have gone down no but that's not what's selling the shows and that's where the gap is and that's what's dangerous 
Josette, I could talk to you about this but for you're not hours. Going to. <laughs> you're not going to. Um, you are a Londoner. We're both Londoners. Yes, but love. you don't live in London, do you? I don't. You live in Stockholm I because do. you are the artistic director of Rigsteiten. How did I say that? Was that all right? It was okay. Darling. Sweating. Don't sweat. Say that word. Don't sweat. Oh. Okay, I'll help you. Say I am it. the artistic, I am one of the artistic directors of the National Touring Theatre of Sweden. Oh, I which, should have just said that. Which is called <laughs> Rigsteiten. Rigsteiten. Yes, and it's the National Touring Theatre of Sweden. And I am in charge of the, what is called Tustteater, which is the sign language department. And how did you get that gig then? Interview. <laughs> Simple. Went up for the job, mate. <laughs> I went, I don't speak Swedish. I don't speak Swedish. <laughs> I got really great ideas and I believe in the power of arts to change people's lives forever. And then I got the job. But why Sweden? Um, good question. Oh, I forgot. <laughs> uh, because my husband is Swedish. Well, there you go. That's the reason. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, no, because we lived in London for quite mm. uh, a long time. Um, but the theatre sought me out. They call it headhunting for that. And um, they wanted something different. They certainly got it. Um, and I live there and I have two sons and we live there. And we now, very luckily, uh, this last year, I've been commuting between Sweden, United States, and then back again to England. So my... And I, it, it, it adds fuel to our discourse, you know. Um, so, no, I live in Sweden, two hours away. Less time, same time it takes to get from here to Newcastle. <laughs> it's true. On a good day. And as a Londoner, I've, I've been to Stockholm twice. And right. I, look at, I look at Sweden mm. and I look at sort of Scandinavia and I think, oh, isn't that very nice and liberal and everybody's relaxed oh, and it's all um, progressive over there. Is that true? No, bullshit. It's absolutely not. It is a country in turmoil at the moment. Um, like many countries, not only in the Nordic regions, but also across Europe at the moment, reflecting on identity, nationalism, um, even the shadow ricochets of Brexit. I mean, all these are permeating Sweden at the moment. We come to an election. The right-wing party, which is a hardcore national front, Russian belt, they will hang you on the street party, are the second biggest in Sweden now. We come to general election next year. And as they say, God help us all. With the movement of Trump as well, indicating what that kind of liberalism or socialism might mean. It's absolutely in jeopardy. I think Sweden is known for its equality of women, its children's rights, uh, its version of democracy. Uh, and it's finding out its version of democracy is a little archaic, actually. So it's t it's Sweden, I think, is in an extremely exciting place. I know I don't paint that picture, but it's in a place where it has a chance to re-argument itself, looking at other countries around. The problem is, is that Sweden's democracy has the... Um, it listens to everybody. And what it's not understanding is that some of the people they're listening to are not prepared to listen to them. So in that sense, but what I must must say is that there's a huge, vibrant activism there, huge uh, HBTQ movement there, uh, Afro-Swedes pushing the vanguard of change and transformation. And that is a privilege to be around, I must say. I must say. I've never... Because in England, as you said, you know, we've grown up more or less diverse, whether it's class or et cetera, et cetera. We meet, we see a lot of different cultures, we hear a lot... But in Sweden, they are coming to terms for the first time. That is unprecedented in my lifetime, to watch Afro-Swedes coming up to wokeness, awakeness, understanding who they are. And that's how some of the questions in the piece came up, because those are the questions that are being asked. There are Afro-Swedes finding out about their history and looking around going, I'll kill you all. Because it's never been taught. 
it's never been, they're coming into it for the first time. So Sweden is definitely a place to visit, but come to the southern part and go to the outskirts of Sweden if you want to see the real Sweden. All I did was go to the Abba Museum. Well, there you go. <laughs> typical. <laughs> typical. No, it's a good museum. It it's a very good museum. museum. Um, but yeah, uh, once you've done that, take the boat back across the water <laughs> and uh, check out some really brilliant parts of Stockholm too, you know, which is diverse and rich and culturally exciting and fusing together both the multiculturalism but also Sweden's identity. So there's a sense that you feel uh, worried about where Sweden is going, but also do you feel hopeful or optimistic that this that this can be stopped, this far right, they can be educated or in again Sweden, it's schools? Yeah, in Sweden I'm not so sure. Here I think we have a very different capacity to do it. In Sweden I'm not so sure because time is running out. Where are we now? Autumn 2017. We're coming to 2018. The, the Socialist Party now which are the head party at this point, have had you know a slightly rocky time. They've got the leaks that's been happening and all that. Um, and Levain, the prime minister at the moment, has chosen to stay and to stay and to keep the staff. But I'm absolutely optimistic that this country, Sweden, will transform itself. But it has got to make some really sharp decisions yesterday about that. Uh, and it is digging its heels in. So unfortunately, because so much attention has been Look what's happening in the rest of the world, because that's what Sweden is known of in its old way, Olof Palm, the the dove of peace. It was Sweden that went in with South Africa, Sweden that does negotiations. So busy looking out, they forgot to look at themselves. And when they turn over their shoulder, right behind them are the right wing, and it's too late. And their democracy says, OK, we listen here, we listen to that, we listen to that, we listen to that. And then it's uh, they've lost track a bit, I think. So optimistic, yes. Change, absolutely. When? We'll wait and see. Josette, do you miss London? All the time. I've never left it. I love it. I'm a Londoner. Always will be. Always am. Come back. Yeah. Love it. We've spoken now for a bit of time about really interesting topics, but we've not even mentioned... Don't! Nina Simone. Yes! <laughs> dun, 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 dun. There she is. There she is. Uh, I have watched Nina, but I've only watched it on screen. I watched it in this room next to us. I'm oh. watching it tonight. I'm oh seeing you live tonight. Oh, God, I have I w- to pull out the vocals <laughs> together. I was sat by myself in this room watching you perform, and I was on my feet clapping at the end of that. I'm not just saying that because I'm next to you. I promise <laughs> you, it was really electric. Um, Thank you. You, you. There's a quote from you in The Guardian where you say, Nina Simone is your GPS. Yes. What does that mean? That means she's my guide. She's my guide to what I think are particularly, particularly are, are terrible times for blacks. Um, for me, it kind of started around the summer of what I call the summer of death in the United States. And this is very important for me because people think that a death in South Africa or a death in a black death at this point in the state doesn't affect me or other blacks. It does. It does. Um, and it was the summer which started with, I mean, there was Michael Brown, Sandra Bland. Sandra Bland was the tipping point. Uh, it was the first time I had braved watching, uh, um, you know, one of the YouTube clips, and I bawled my eyes. And then I swore then I would never cry again, ever. I don't know, there was something about her voice, her tone. Um, it was that summer, really, and onwards, of so many blacks dying, uh, so much police and infrastructure being exposed and being... Police getting off, off, getting off the crime, letting off, 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 off. I mean, you know... And that's how the piece came about. And that's it was me coming to a point and I use Nina and her songs to help me answer some questions. I sing her songs as juxtaposition. I sing her songs in one part of the piece in order to express a hidden feeling. But also this part, I do set out to do a concert. And then, as is the truth, I can't really go on in this concert until this audience are really aligned with what is in my head and what was in Nina's head during her civil rights 
She didn't write Mississippi Goddamn because it was a funky down tune. She wrote it as a protest against the lynchings and the beatings in the Deep South. And people don't like to talk about it. They don't like to think about it. So for me, um, that's why she's my GPS and she guides me still with some of the most fundamental challenges as an artist. For me, that's the thing. What do we do with our stuff? It's a bit like you as an artist here working with your colleague. When do you start to go, this is just, you know, we're just recording stuff. When are we going to start to do stuff that when we send this out, people are going to react, they're going to change their lives. It's a similar journey I think we all go on. But for Nina, it was a tipping point. It was, um, I believe, I keep getting this wrong, but I know it was James Baldwin, uh, Lorraine Hansbury, and I not Langston Hughes, and Harry Belafonte that asked Nina to join them at a gig that they were doing in the Mississippi um, in the beginning of the 60s. And she was already a prolific artist, drawing in students, I mean, world famous. And she said yes, and with the paraphrasing her, she basically said, once I committed, I knew I was home. My work suddenly became clear and focused. I knew what I was doing. I met students, they needed me. It wasn't like the industry that was trying to shaft me. I would sing and they felt me. Um, so she guides me. She gives me courage and also her consummate demand on an audience, which is what I play within the space. You want to listen to me? You fucking look at me. Look, don't look away. Look at me. If don't talk when I'm speaking. This is what Nina did. And people always think, oh, she's really horrible, isn't she? Well, it's a bit scary, but then Nina was like that. Nina was like that. I'm going to give you everything, but I want everything in return. And what I loved about the show was that you, Josette Bushelmingo, were playing Josette Bushelmingo. You weren't doing a Nina Simone no. impression. No. And uh, you, you actually say in the play, I don't play Nina, only Nina could play herself. Yes. So it's a sort of an appreciation of rather than yes. anything else, isn't it? And also as well that when I talked to when you asked me, what can I do, you know, mm. myself as a white person, go find out about Nina. That's what you could do. I have found out about Nina. I She's know. incredible. I know, but do you know what I mean? And there's young yeah. people, you know, yeah. sitting spotted, looking her up mm. as I'm playing. I can see mm. them going... And realising who she was mm. and what she did and carrying so many of the values for us as blacks, as us artists, as a global, I mean, um, citizens. There's so much that she carried in her. And then she opens the door to so many others and a celebration of our black British civil rights activists, which is where I'm into at the moment. I want to find them all. Well, there's a great line in the, in the piece as well where you say the problem with God is that he's white. He's so white, yeah. <laughs> the, one I, the one I was under was white. The one that you went to church with? Yes, the one I went to church with. He forgave everybody and he forgave the murderer and the murdered, the rapist and the rape, racist and the victim of racism. He makes it very, very confusing. It wasn't even a Catholic God. This was just a straight old crucified, drink the blood of Christ every Sunday, which actually turned out to be sherry in the hmm. end. It was religious sherry, but it was sherry nonetheless. <laughs> um, and that, I think, is for me one of the biggest tensions about my own faith of which I wouldn't call, I don't have a faith, I don't go to church. My own argument with God, I mean, I've always said, you know, before I go down to hell, I want a cup of tea with Jesus, or God, and have a cup of tea, you and I, just, just talk this out before you send me into the fires of hell, because I need to understand some of the things you've said that it's our, I just want to talk, <laughs> I just want to talk. So yes, and that's for me is about forgiveness, which in the end is a personal choice, which is why when we come to the end of the play, which is that very difficult moment, you realise when I ask the audience what you're going to say to stop me from doing this deed, no one can say anything because, of course, it boils right down in the end to Josette making a choice. That's what links um, performances by Nina Simone, for instance, the 1976 uh, jazz festival oh. where she performed at, and, and the, your mm. performance as well, is that there are moments of real awkwardness. When I watched it, admittedly on screen, I'm seeing it live tonight, <laughs> as I said, I felt awkward and uncomfortable, perhaps because yeah. of the colour of my skin. Well, yes, yeah. because of the colour of my skin. Yeah. And that's, that's a really 
you really make the audience question. And there was also a moment when some of the audience members were laughing. Yeah. And you're saying, why the fuck are you laughing? Yeah. What are you laughing about? Absolutely. What are you laughing about? What's so funny? Laughter comes because of nerves and stuff like that. Absolutely. But what's very important is I don't play Nina. I inhabit her spirit. And she would have asked the same thing. She would have asked us. She would have stopped playing. She would have stood up and said, what do you to tell me? What's your problem? You look me in the eye and you tell me what it is. Forget everyone else is in the room. What is it? Yesterday, the same thing happened. It's because of nerves. But um, there's been responses, for example, and sometimes I put the line in or not, depends, but I say... Um, you will be free. The, the choices I make about people who will survive and not survive. And I used to say, and you, because you look foreign, used to be a lot of laughter. That used to really piss me off. I'd have to end up going up with a whole other monologue, you know. I mean, why are you laughing? You're sitting in fucking Brexit. What are you laughing at? Foreigner. You're foreign. I mean, it just fries my brain because people cannot see the join. They look at someone who might look Middle Eastern. They look at someone who might be um, African descent. They look at someone who might be Asian, as in Korea, China, etc. They make all these judgments. And you as the United... We, you as the United Kingdom, sitting in the midst of all this, and you laugh because I say the word foreigner. You know nothing about your country, nothing about your history. Then there's the nervous laughter of theatre. And I have control on it. It's not that I don't know, but sometimes it's most appropriate. I've even had people, when I've asked them, you know... Um, uh, what 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 am I what what should I do? I've got this gun in my hand. Tell me, and people have called out because we love you, Giselle. So you love me, but you don't love the black guy who got raped by the police in France. You don't love the black gay guy who got burnt in his car in Sweden. You don't and, you, and the list. Unfortunately, I have in my head. Rashan Charles. We have the guy in Coventry. This is not enough. Love is no longer. God is not enough. So you need to help me go deeper into this brain. And if it's black, white, go in there and help me to find the answer. And this is very, very, I realise that, maybe a little too late, that the corner that I take people into, there is no out. There is no out. I sing to get myself out. And this, the show, Nina, it's played in Stockholm, it's played in yes. Liverpool, it's coming to the end of its run now, unfortunately, at the Young Beach. Yes. You're going to Edinburgh. I am. And then? And then after that, it's uh, just received Arts Council funding. So it will go on tour oh, fantastic. Uh, next year. So it'll be places like Nottingham, Birmingham, uh, Manchester, uh, Theatre Royal Street. I mean, yeah, some very good venues. Um, it's been invited to Panama. It'll go to Washington and New York. And now they're thinking of making a short film documentary travel thing, which is that little black girl from the East End of London <laughs> following the footsteps of Nina Simone. So that's all the things that's happening and so much, so, so many unexpected things all because of Nina. Well, I urge everyone in those places to go and see it. And Josette <laughs> Bushelman go OBE. Oh, thank, thank you. Thank you so much for coming in this afternoon. It's, it's so brilliant to chat to you. You're brilliant. And you're me. brilliant too. <laughs> thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Off Book by The Young Vic. If you'd like to hear more conversations with some of the most exciting people in theatre, subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes. <laughs>